Welcome, everyone, to the 68th episode of the New Jed Mindset Podcast. I'm Dan Kozell here with Nick Tartaglia. What's going on, Nick? What's up, Dan? Well, as we clearly have established, we both have a little bit of a sniffles coming back from Vancouver. And uh, the weather is kind of sucky, so... Well, it's it's, a, it's almost like we brought the Vancouver weather back with us. Exactly, and, ironically, right? So pe- people were fed up because we left. I think you know people in the states too. I think there was one weekend where it was about like ninety-two degrees at some point. So uh, anyway, a lot of stuff happening mm-hmm. macroeconomically right now. Um, I think the Fed published or the the yeah they published the inflation numbers uh, for last month at four point eight. We know it's probably a lot higher. Uh, there's a lot of uh, gaps right now, I think, both in Canada and the U.S. that most people are just not paying attention to right mm-hmm. now. Um, yeah, there's we had, yeah. yeah, we had a great time in Vancouver. We met a lot of great yeah. people um, who have a really strong understanding of what's happening globally. Uh, but there's something else that I think a lot of people need to start paying attention to right now, and that's really what are provinces, or in this case, states, doing with their capital to at least increase the standard of living in society, right? Um, yeah. It comes policies. down... This is where the monetary policies come into play. Ironically, we don't want politics to be a huge factor in that variable, but it is. Therefore, it's a conversation that is necessary to have. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that's happened too is uh, midterms are coming up in the US, something to pay attention to. Uh, and <laughs> the other thing that most people also are not aware of is, you know, what ultimately is the Fed going to do to cause a recession, right? Whether um, it does something or does nothing, we'll get there. I think it's inevitable, but we'll leave that to the experts at this point. But we've got somebody here who um, he's been at the heart and soul of policy making uh, in the U.S. right now. He's going to tell us a little bit more about that. Um, so without further ado, I mean, this gentleman here, he's the policy director of the Sound Money Defense League, uh, and he's armed with the belief of restoring sound money uh, would improve the quality of life for billions of people throughout the world and a background in Austrian economics. I know, Nick, you love Austrian economics. Yeah. Uh, he crafts his policies and testifies his legislative at legislative hearings all over the U.S., and he's regularly invited to speak at events on sound money, constitutional issues, monetary policy, and state policy. Uh, he's also the lead author of the Sound Money Index, an annual report that ranks all 50 states to determine which states offer the most pro-sound money environments in the country. Um, and with the, he's, he's had many legislative victories across dozens of states since 20, 2018. Um, this guy or this gentleman has become a leading contributor to sound money efforts across the United States. Uh, and he's had his analysis and articles featured on Business Insider, Huffington Post, Newsweek, Washington Examiner. Uh, welcome to the New Gen Mindset podcast, JP Cortez. Hey, Dan, what's up, Nick? It's good to see you guys. Thank you for having me on. So JP, just so just give a little uh, background, guys. JP, we met JP back in Vancouver. He was one of the, uh, the special guests on stage at the very conference. And uh, obviously, he's a great guy. We clicked. We got to hang out a lot of time with him. So we want to start off the new kind of post Vrick conference podcasting series, I guess, or you don't necessarily call it a series, but with you right on. And uh, basically, we want to start off first thing off the bat is get to know you and a little bit of your history. So, you know, how did you get into space? How did you develop your framework and so on? Yeah, sure thing. So um, I came into this uh, probably late in high school. So, you know, late, late teens. I, I grew up in, uh, you know, I was listening to punk rock and sort of skeptical of, of authority kind of in general, uh, but not really being able to sure or being able to, to describe or explain why. <clears throat> and it was through American politics, actually, that I kind of came through this. I, I discovered former Congressman Ron Paul, um, who was uh, a American politician in Texas for many years. And, uh, you know, those just that whole Ron Paul's whole thing really resonated with me, right? This, the ideas of individual liberty and, and taking responsibility and freedom and, and how markets work. Uh, and, and that really resonated with me and, and sort of everything clicked, um, when, when I sort of found this ideology. Um, and so I went down to Auburn, uh, the university or excuse me, Auburn university down in Alabama, uh, to get my degree. And it was there that I realized that the Mises Institute, 
um, which is, you know, the, the world's leading foremost institute on Austrian economics, uh, was literally right across the street. So uh, I, you know, started studying Austrian economics. I started uh, reading the history, reading the econ, reading the philosophy. And uh, I, I came to I came to this sort of uh, morally minded conclusion that um, you know m- monetary policy as as a a tool or institution that can be weaponized uh, you know wreaks havoc all all in the United States uh, and and all across the world and being able to to manipulate monetary monetary policy and to weaponize and to to politicize monetary policy has has wrought so much you know destruction and and war and and if nothing else just a terribly wasteful spending um and so so the morality of it so because and we can talk about you know supply and demand charts we can look at uh you know uh stock to flow ratio we can we can look at all of these numeric metrics and you know all of the stuff that goes into why we believe what we believe and all of that stuff is super important but to me it was like the morality of wait a second when inflation happens people that are already struggling to afford food and housing and and medicine can't afford those things these these problems are exacerbated and inflation is a policy choice mm-hmm. and so the morality behind that has kind of gripped me and so I went to law school coming out of law school, um, or excuse me, I uh, coming out of my undergrad, I went to law school, uh, I dropped out to start this project to focus full time on, on the Sound Money Defense League writing sound money policy um, here in the States. And it has been honestly a dream. Uh, it's been really incredible. The successes have been great. The, the opportunities have been great. Uh, getting being able to, to, you know, monetize a cause that I feel so mm-hmm. passionately about uh, is an awesome way to live your life. Um, so yeah, I, and, and that's kind of, kind of brought us here to where we are now full circle. Do you mind just talking a little bit of, tell us a little bit of the experience at the Mises Institute, because it's just out of context here. Most educational systems are based on Keynesian principles of economics. When you go to school, universities, you learn Keynesian principles, even though they don't necessarily tell you that's the framework or that there's other perspectives. And there's not many other schools that teach different perspectives, economics. So the Mises Institute is for sure, like you said, one of the forefront schools. So, you know, it would be nice to get a little bit of like, um, how was your experience there? People you met? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I would say that so like I mentioned, Auburn's, uh, Auburn's campus is literally right across the street from Mises's campus. So I found myself in, uh, I, I think I was getting like an international business degree or, or like an econ, or whatever it was. And I found myself in these econ courses, these finance courses, these accounting courses. And yeah, there was, there was always a presupposition. And that presupposition was governments can deficit spend their way into prosperity, no matter what the problem is. No matter what's going on, the government can always fix it by spending more. And that idea was never really questioned. It was just accepted as true until I got to the Mises Institute. And I remember my very first time there uh, was uh, the introductory day of uh, Mises University, which is a week-long summer program they hold every year uh, for students. Uh, they, they, they offer scholarships, and they, you go out there, and you, and you do a very intense week-long econ, uh, you know, econ philosophy program on Austrian economics. And I remember Tom Woods was giving the introductory speech when, when we got there and he, he told us, and you know, Tom Woods is someone who has, who is credentialed in all of the ways that, uh, you know, one would want to be credentialed. I believe he has a bachelor's from Columbia and then an advanced degree from Harvard or, or something, some, some combination of Ivy league schools like that. And it was during his, his introductory speech that he said, this is going to be the intellectual experience of a lifetime for many of you. Um, and he was jaw droppingly right. Um, you know, questions I had never considered uh, and just being around in a space where you have these prominent economists and historians um, and, and, and writers and being able to, to do what we're doing now, right? Have a conversation, 
hey, there's something I read in your book that I don't, I don't necessarily understand or even I don't buy it. Let's talk about it. Let's hash this out. And so you have people like Walter Block out until you know midnight still taking students' questions. You have uh, Judge Napolitano uh, giving these really intense law school classes on the Constitution. Um, you know, Jeff Deist and um, you know, these, these big names, Joe Salerno, these, these big names in, in the Austrian tradition that have taken the tradition of Ludwig von Mises and, and Hayek and Rothbard and expanded it and carried it out here. And it, it makes for an educational experience that you don't, you don't really get in the States. The, the idea of like Socratic learning, the idea of, uh, you know, learning through question asking versus what tends to be more of a static process, at least here in the States with, with education, where, you know, you have one person in the front of the room, we're going to age all of you by group, we're going to expect you to sit still for seven to eight hours, or excuse me, we're going to group all of you by age, expect you to sit still. And it's, it's almost carceral in nature. There's mm-hmm. a, there's a, you know, a leader and then a follower and, and one teaches the other. Um, but in, in institutions like, like the Mises Institute, um, the, the learning process is much more organic. It's much more natural. And I think ultimately that's what, that's how you get into like passion, finding things that, well, I, I enjoy studying this, not because of the grade that I'm chasing or because of the paycheck that I hope to obtain when it's all over, but because like this clicks and this, uh, you know, resonates or challenges or confirms my worldview in a way that like tests me as a person. And, and I think mm-hmm. that's, I, that's what I get or what I got out of spending I love what you said there because, you know, for me, and I feel like this is where you and I can relate to really well is my passion really for economics started with my first like economics class. But what I realized was that the person teaching it didn't actually understand fundamentally what value creation was. It was more of, Hey, this is the system. This is what the system has been doing. And then I only realized that I think maybe three or four years ago that there were two schools of thought and that what Nick was just talking, what you were talking about was like, hey, there's the Keedsia group or the Austria group. The Keedsia guys are just print, 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 print. So I know it's obvious to a lot of like people that understand what's going on, but long term, like what happens in society and what have you seen in terms of policy creation or money printing gets so excessive that it actually causes the entire system to one suffer two eventually it's just not sustainable so what what have you seen from your experience with excessive money printing and policy creation yeah so as a question of excuse me as a question of history i think a, a really sort of simple and powerful place to start is the idea that uh, the survival rate for a fiat money uh, on a long enough timeline is zero. No, this over and over again, where, where governments can deem paper money and suddenly they, this, an economy builds off of, off of this, this farce, this illusion, and then it all comes down. And, and this has happened several times in the past. And it literally never works. So we'll start there. Everywhere from you know the the hyperinflation in, in Weimar Germany or in the Weimar Republic uh, to what we're seeing in Venezuela right now to what we're seeing in Lebanon right now, this is it is ahistoric at this point to believe that governments can 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 spend endlessly and it not be a problem. Um, but what we're what what we see when this happens is not you know there's obviously tragedy in every time someone loses a job or, or when someone, you know, uh, falls down the, the socioeconomic class or ladder. And that, that's obviously very sad, but what I'm talking about and inflationary monetary policy breeds is not one, it's not individual, it's systemic. And you're talking about the entire you know, pulling apart at the fabric of society. You're talking about uh, a it, worlds and societies that, you know, uh, go through the process of capital accumulation and understand the process of value creation. It's these that life expectancy grows, that crime rates fall, that more people uh, have an increased standard of living because of, well, I think for several reasons, but 
because of the the ability to plan, right? The, the stability that comes with a stable money lets entrepreneurs, for example, say, okay, I want to start building this thing. And in, in you know, in, in third world countries or in, in less settled societies, you're out. You're not able to go through that kind of financing mm-hmm. and that kind of building to, you know, build infrastructure or to build a product or to provide a service to people because you can't think that far ahead. And it's through that process that that society ends up enriching itself because of, of the monetary policy that allows allows things to be stable. And, and with mm-hmm. that comes a monetary policy that isn't able or, e- or isn't easily manipulated. But, you know, the policy, what's happening here because of all this, we're seeing that I've been running around state legislatures now for six or seven years. And today, more than ever, inflation is no longer a deniable problem. You know, they can't, they can't keep calling it, you know, Putin's price hike or they, or they can't keep saying that, you know, it's transitory every day. Yeah. Yeah. Greedy companies. Every day that this continues to go on, the lie becomes bolder and bolder and it becomes hard. So states all over are regularly at this point passing and introducing, or excuse me, introducing and passing legislation to allow people into and out of the dollar without penalty. So gold and silver are, are, you know, uh, inflation hedges for thousands of years. It's the only form of money mentioned in the U.S. Constitution. But in many states around the country, you're taxed for going into and out of gold and silver. Sales tax when you buy the asset, capital gains tax when you sell the asset. To regulations that surround people wanting to, to protect the purchasing power of their own money in gold and silver. And so the government penalizes you for doing that. Mm-hmm. So states and even the feds are, are passing legislation to make it easier to get to to get into one of these lifeboats like a gold and silver at a time when the dollar, you know, is is moribund. It, it is dying a slow death. Out of curiosity, from the when you're saying that some of the states are doing it, are you, is it more Republican states, Democrat states, or is it a mix? Like how what, what what's the dynamic you're seeing on that front? You know what I think. That's such an awesome question. And I get it's a question I get a lot and I understand why I get it. But I think the answer always surprises people. In my experience in in writing these policies and, and you know, going back and back and forth between a dozen states on any given year, what I found is that the idea of sound money uh, is is political. But it is. Um, and what I mean by that is. For example, we've been working in Tennessee, which is a, a known red state. Uh, the legislature is red. The governor is red. Um, it is a known Republican state. And for seven years, we've been working there to eliminate sales tax on gold and silver assets. And it has not been able to, it, we just haven't, excuse me, we just haven't had any luck. Alternatively, well, why is that out of question? Well, I think at least in the States, its own perceived revenue needs and so if if i tell you that you know uh if if for some reason government officials believe that they're bringing in you know a million dollars worth of revenue by taxing canadian maple leaves and mm-hmm. south african krugerrands uh they want that revenue and they're mm-hmm. going to hold on to it and there's something there's there's a very static sort of thought process that goes into that whereas makes more sense because you can look at things like that and say, okay, maybe you will quote unquote lose however much revenue you get from the sales tax. But what if I told you that investors are now going to stay in the state mm-hmm. and that businesses are now going to want to do business in your state and that conventions and coin shows and all of these events will flock to your state. You're talking about tourism dollars. You're talking about sales tax dollars. You've got B&O. These are, these are opportunities for the state to back this revenue, but the average legislator, the average lawmaker is a little too 1D and they're, they're thinking a little too linearly and, okay, we're going to reduce, or if we end this tax, we're reduced by that much. It's very static analysis. And then that's kind of, okay, fine. That is what it is. And so each state has its own, you know, perceived financial needs. Um, but Tennessee, we've had, you know, a really, really hard time getting this done there. Alternatively, Hawaii is a blue state and and they're passing bills unanimously out of uh, several committees. Uh, we've introduced in New Jersey and in Pennsylvania. Um, so there, there's 
a, a political element and a political nature to sound money, but it doesn't fall along party lines. Okay, cool. I want to maybe just build on that. Um, something that you guys have in the States that I admire the most is <laughs> that your governments on a state to state level are extremely transparent. Like there's, if I understand this correctly, you guys, every state has a legal board and a website where citizens in that state can actually review what policies are coming through and where the money is going. Is that correct? Uh, it's probably a little more difficult than that for like the average person to go on a site and find figures like that. But, but yeah, each state has its own site and like the policies are tracked and yeah, there's, uh, you know, budget expenditures. Yeah. All of that is publicly available. Yeah, exactly. So that is publicly available. We don't have that up here uh, in Quebec. They just take our money. They charge us. Okay. Let's say you make more than a hundred thousand dollars. They're going to say, okay, we're going to 47% of that is ours. You're never going to know where, where that money goes. So that's, mm -hmm. that's another reason why I love the U S because you guys have that layer of transfer. I know Florida in particular, they're very transparent with their spending. So the question I have there is like, <laughs> You know, let's say you take Tennessee, for example, and they take that money on the tax from silver and gold, whatever the sales tax is. Citizens are able to keep track of that. But if you go to a blue state, for example, and I don't want to make this bipartisan in any way, but like, do you see a trend in a versus like a red state and a blue state or maybe a purple state for that matter, where the dollars that are being reinvested, so the tax dollars that are coming in from the sales tax of gold and silver, do you see that going to productive output? Well, the productive part is what I would question <laughs> to begin with. Um, so hang on, I do have a question. I sure you just said something. Canada's top Canada's tax rate is 47%. Well, it depends where. Like here in Quebec, it's fifty-three. That's if you make based more, on it's it's if you make more than a hundred hundred three hundred eighty-seven thousand is fifty-three. But anyway, no, it's it's, it's, it's very the, no because it's it. I think it's one hundred three. The moment you hit the hundred three k mark, it, you ne everything in excess of that automatically gets taxed fifty-three percent. Regardless, it's more than fifty percent at times. Yeah, and that's an incredibly low threshold. A hundred thousand dollars isn't. You know, that's they not a huge amount of money today. They don't want rich people here. The government needs their money. Yeah, It's like okay. you said, right? So they, they need their capital. They need their $100,000 in Canada is a lot because it's not, it's only 35 million people. So, you know, to have a million dollars to generate over $100,000 here relative to the population in proportion, you know, it's like, okay, that's a lot. And they need their money. So they justify with that. And yeah. like you said before, they don't, never, they never want to let go of their revenue streams. Yeah. Um, I'm Dan, what was <laughs> the question was, are like, are, are you seeing trends and patterns in different types of states? Oh, oh spending, spending, spending on tax dollars. Like, okay. Is it productive? Uh, is it being used actually productively or is it just because they really want it, their money and they just yeah. benefits? And are they just burning it in a fire pit? Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> at the risk of painting with a very broad brush, uh, yeah, they're burning it in a fire pit. Yeah, that's but that that's that's sort of a product of American politics, I think. Mm -hmm. But so to go back, um, that sort of financial tracking, what you were talking about, as far as like, okay, X is derived from and that X goes to pay, you know, Y fund about this or that. It's not that. It's not that transparent. It's not that tracked. Uh, normally, in as far as like the accounting of all of this works, uh, you've got general funds and you've you've got various funds that things are coming in and out of. There is very rarely like direct source revenue paying off something else. Normally, everything gets pooled and then gets divvied out by the legislature. But what is America more than $30 trillion in debt now? Um, a lot of states themselves are running deficits. A lot of states don't have anything in the way of like a meaningful uh, rainy day fund or, or like a, a savings account, quote unquote. Um, and so, yeah, I think states states themselves have, in, in some cases, some states are really good at this, but some states have, you know, really big spending problems, uh, really big pension problems in the United States. <clears throat> It's a pension problem that we are 
hurtling towards because pensions across this country are wildly underfunded. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes legislatures will pick up things and uh, they will say, you know, yeah, we'll contribute 2% more to the pension fund or, or the state reserve fund or, or whatever it is. But by nature of how the American political system works, both on the state and federal level, there's so much bloat uh, and, and bureaucratically that, you know, the odds of spending this money, like in an efficient way, in a way that maybe you or I or Nick would, in a way that like gives consideration to cost and efficiency, um, that that's not really something that happens here. You know, it's funny because in any other scenario other than when it comes to the government, when people spend and spend and run debt and can't solve problems and they do it over and over we automatically will say okay well something's wrong we need to revamp we need to cost we need to reduce your cost we do something like that with them the government it's always the same solution to them the solution is always the same we just need more money Mm -hmm. and it's never we need to reduce our size or eliminate something that doesn't work it's just okay we'll keep everything we have give us more money and then we'll add on more yeah and that's such like a, a, you know, kind of brilliantly put way illustrate like the American and I, and maybe this is similar in Canada. Yeah. It's the same thing. There's like something to this idea that like, you know, we've never spent more on schools. We have never spent more on policing. We've never spent more on military, but the answer is always, Oh, if we only had a little bit more money, we'd be able to end world hunger and, and drug overdoses and, and, (laughs) And it, it never occurs to these people want like the moral hazard involved with spending other people's mm-hmm. money. There's an obvious societal or, or, philosoph- or excuse me, like, uh, you know, mindset sort of uh, difference that comes with spending someone else's money. But like the, the hubris involved in, oh, if only we had, you know, if only we could tax Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk at 80 percent, there would be no world hunger. And it, it, it requires like a, a level of disillusionment and like a, a complete 100%. separation to reality. Like, oh, if money, lack of money is the problem, that, that must be the issue. And it is, it is completely backwards. It, uh, you know, it, it requires, people, it requires yeah. pretending. But people don't realize money is nothing more than a means of transaction. It represents nothing more than that, that transaction between two processes, but it doesn't mean that the infrastructure doesn't there. It doesn't mean the resources are there. It doesn't mean any of it. If you want to f- solve world hunger, there's a whole infrastructure that needs to be built mm-hmm. behind it. You need to have farms, you need people that work on the farms, you need the animals, you need the food coming out, you need to add all the food moving around, then you need a way for people to collect the food, and then you need that to be sustainable. So it's not just a, okay, I have a trillion dollars, I'm going to spend a trillion dollars, collect a massive amount of food, feed it out. Okay, you fed everybody for one day. Okay, now you got to do that now every what? day, every mm-hmm. year for a long time. So it, it's that confusion that money somehow solves problems. No, it solves some problems, but it doesn't solve everything. Yeah. And so I think something uses like specifically to like the taxing and, and, you know, Elon Musk's net worth has gone up by, you know, a billion dollars this week or whatever. That's and paper wealth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like talk to me when these are realized until he cashes out, he hasn't made or lost anything. But like that, the idea that like, okay, if we tax, if, if you taxed Elon Musk at 100%, un, unrealized capital gains, tax him at 100%, you work in federal government budget for like 25 days. Mm-hmm. Now what? Like there was the, a, and a, there's the, no consideration for like what happens after or like, wh- okay, now we have the money. Well, what do we do with it? Elon, it's, two years it's ago, extremely at, short-sighted. At the beginning of COVID, I don't remember if you remember it, but everybody was attacking Elon because he started, like his stock was going up and he was becoming really, really rich. And then the World Health Organization came out saying, oh, if we had this much money, we could solve world hunger. So Elon came out and challenged them, literally said to mm-hmm. me, give me a plan. Show me the, the plan of how you would solve world hunger if I gave you this much money. And I then we'll talk tweet. about it. I saw, they, I, I remember. Where, where is this? The experts, the experts don't know when it, don't know anything when it comes to actually applying their principles and their models or whatever into the real economy. They don't know how to do any of that. They come up with their fantasy models and these fantasy world, this topic, you know, this utopia world where, oh yes, I have the money and automatically tomorrow I have the food. No, no, 
give me a plan. We'll and then we'll talk. It's two years later. We still haven't seen nothing from them or heard nothing from them. Just chop gone. Mm-hmm. One of the one, one of the things I've also realized too is like you know we we've been so accustomed to in society uh, to trust sort of the experts uh, <laughs> in the field, uh, and it seems like more and more people our age uh, are starting to realize that like these people for lack of a better word, these people don't know shit. Uh, and the only reason that they're doing what they're doing is to unfortunately enrich themselves. Right. <clears throat> That's what politics unfortunately has turned into. And I hate to say that because at the end of the day, like I, I like politics. I think it runs everything. No question about that drives economic activity. But I feel like we've reached a point now in society where it's like, no, here's $25 trillion, do what you got to do. And like you said, that thing evaporates in a span of, let's say a month, you know, then what? There's no thinking of sustainability and there's no thinking of the long term. So I don't know, this is a pretty loaded question I'm about to ask you, where did we go wrong in society? Uh, just, from, just from your experience, like where, where, <laughs> where what's, the, what's the pipe that we need to fix right now? Right now, to me, the answer is money. Um, I think there is no greater communicative tool that humans use to communicate than money. Are you referring to the psychology of it? Or are you referring to the actual, like, you know, deposit of it? Like, is it a I, mindset thing? Or is I it think like, both of it. The, uh, both of it. Like, there's, there's definitely a, uh, you know, a, a psychology to money. Where is money? Where does it derive its value? But even outside of that, I think prices you know, these, these monetary designations that are, are ascribed to cereal or to uh, the price of gasoline or to the price of water. These are information. Prices are signals and they carry information. And so understanding that these aren't arbitrarily assigned numbers by some rich person that just wants to make money is like an incredibly, I think, like it's a gap that we have to close before Americans and and sounds like people worldwide sort of understand that you know money is not something to be tooled, uh, toyed with or tooled with by a government. That's not how money works. But so I, I guess that would be uh, you know since since 1913 the and we can go even farther back. Yeah, we'll start even farther back than that. Uh, America, at least on paper, was was designed to be a system based in gold and silver. It was the only form of money mentioned in the constitution. That was the whole idea from the beginning. Enter the civil war in the mid, uh, mid 1860s, uh, when for the first time America had to declare something legal tender. So they, they started coats uh, that weren't backed by gold for the first time in American history. And uh, they called them the legal tender acts. Uh, these were ended up being heard by the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled, hey, it's a time of emergency. You're allowed to, to suspend normal rules. So legal tender, paper, fiat, fake money is okay, um, is what they said. And there's a saying here in the States, uh, you know, it's, it's not worth a greenback. Uh, that's because the greenbacks, the American continental was the, or it was the first American monetary unit that hyperinflated. America has already gone through hyperinflation. We've seen it before. And so the greenback dies, <clears throat> excuse me. And now we're getting into the 1900s and uh, the, the government, the country is starting to spend more on infrastructure, starting to, to generally become more involved versus a system that was sort of designed so that the federal government wouldn't be involved uh, in 1913. And now you enter, you usher in like this real era of unbacked monetary printing um, in a way that hadn't really been seen in in the modern, excuse me, in um, the modern West anyway. Um, And it's through this unbacked printing that America is able to run huge deficits and that America is able to capture and maintain hegemony, just hegemonic power over the rest of the world. Um, having uh, reserve currency status uh, and with with exactly what I was talking about earlier, the, the power and the ability to weaponize monetary policy uh, so as to harm your to harm your enemies or as to help your friends. And I think all of that. And, and so everything that comes with that right now, you have uh, uh, 1913 was the Federal Reserve. Uh, shortly after that, you have the beginning of World War One. Uh, then you have the Great Depression. 
Depression, World War II, and then you have Vietnam, Korea, uh, you have, you know, uh, massive uh, interventions all across the world, and you have a moral decay at home where homelessness is increasing, mm -hmm. crime is increasing, um, you know, general standards of living, uh, while increasing, you know, are hurting at the margins. And so you have real practical consequences to everything we're talking about here. And you can look, see war, you can see that in open air slave trades in Libya, you can see that in the Middle East that, you know, America and, and the West has, has largely created a ruin of, but also you can see in people, you know, the, the, the mind process and the psychology that comes with easy money. And so now you have individuals that are focused on consumerism. You have individuals that are focused on conspicuous consumption, which is, I think that in, in an easy credit money-based society like the one we live in today, any assets to your name, anything you have is not necessarily indicative of any wealth you might actually have. You, you know, living on credit is a very real thing. And so you have everyone's time preference, which is another Austrian idea. Everyone's time preference is, is increasing. People are more immediate, people more, uh, more immediate minded. There is, there's very little thought for the future. Sure. Mm -hmm. So with that, you have like obvious, um, obvious consequences interpersonally and, and societally with, for example, like I don't know, things like drug use, for example, and, and things like uh, gambling and things uh, that, that capture people in a very now centric world and forces people to think to solve their immediate needs. And that's all that matters. And by, by increasing time preference, people have lost the ability to the plan for the future. And that, like I said earlier, is the process that makes societies rich. It's the process that, that raises everyone up out, out of poverty and out of, uh, you know, un, un, unhappy and, and uncomfortable situations. And it's going through that process that is necessary. So if I, if I had, if it were me, it's money. It's, it's the government control of money that has completely obfuscated and warped these signals, uh, price signal, moral and social signals too. I think that we can, like going back to the, remember the question, Dan, you were asking about productivity and the thing you were talking about right now, uh, GP, about the time preference issue. If you go back to it is like, if you know your populace is very short-term driven and you can only win politically by appealing to short-term preferences, then the way you go about allocating your capital will be driven by those short-term immediate satisfactions, which means that you're not thinking about allocating capital long-term because people in your populace don't understand the meaning of it or don't find value in it. Therefore, you're not really being productive with the way you're going to allocate your people's capital. So you're just playing the short-term game as a politician in that, in that very context. And that's sort of like, th that is politics in general, not just like yeah. the capital allocation part to it, but of course, like, 100%. you know, this is, this is largely a popularity contest. And so it mm. behooves you to, to, to play up or to, to do what you need to earn to rile up a base and so like and i think that really illustrates the disconnect between like ostensibly what it is we're doing like when we're voting and you're like electing leaders or you're electing people excuse me to like speak on your behalf or represent you and like the reality of that process which is like politicians largely don't write legislation they don't write policy they're they're coached and they have you know talking points that there's a real disconnect between like the idea of what elections are supposed to be and what it means to elect someone mm -hmm. and, and the, the, the responsibility or the role that, that that person has and like the reality of what at least American politics is, which is closer to like community theater than, than problem solving. I think we've also entered a time too where, um, Again, I don't want to sound conspiratorial, but you know, the <laughs> World Economic Forum and you know, the health World Health Organization, they had a beating this week. Hmm. There are a lot of news outlets that were invited there, and the ones that were not were obviously more of like the right wing conservative type of crowd. And um, you know, I was watching some of the stuff that's out there. Now I know it's probably not so much related to the work that you're doing, but it definitely ties into it, is the fact that, you know. There is a division happening globally right now. 
and it's a very it's a very deep one unfortunately and it's causing a lot of people to kind of turn against each other um you know friends that people thought were friends and then you know nick and i met because of our philosophy i think you and i kind of just kicked it off in vancouver the same way because like we just see the world pretty similarly but you know maybe because you're going to be doing this for a while so for the next like 10 to 20 years you know what do you see could be a good improvement in society at least in the united states based on policy creation uh that's going to help america people get out of this crazy slump that we're in and the second question i have is what are you going to do once you get to that position uh to maintain that in terms of sustainability <laughs> loaded so questions I, yeah well well i think so yeah kind of but i think like despite the fact that my my policy is or excuse me my title is policy director literally what i do for a living is policy um policy isn't going to be the answer because you can't legislate morality and so like yeah that isn't to say that there aren't things that policy can't or excuse me there aren't things that policy can achieve certainly there are and and there are desired outcomes certainly but th that whole idea like speaks to my worldview in a way that like the, the the idea of central planning as a means of you know allocating resources or as a means of like governing society is is such a a bad way to do it because of the the, the lack of you know the lack of information, the decentralized knowledge, the the Hayekian idea that like there's imperfect information everywhere. And so to centralize decision making. Um, and so I think I'll start with that, that like a lot of these these issues are not questions to be answered with policy. And that's kind of a good thing because policy is a cudgel, right? It's a, it's mm -hmm. a broad sort of a thick beating instrument it's not a surgical tool it's not something to be used like with precision to try to get that right um policy is is largely something that like gets weaponized and gets manipulated and gets used you know to the benefit of the person warping it uh, i think as as far as like my field states more and more are introducing and passing legislation to eliminate the taxes into and out of gold and silver. So uh, removing the friction for individuals to invest in gold and silver if they want to do that. That's incredibly important. States themselves too are passing uh, or introducing and passing legislation to uh, you know fix things in, in their own state. Uh, in many cases, states from storing or investing physical gold and silver in state reserves or in pension funds or in taxpayer funds. And that's something that because of uh, prudent investor rules and because of alternative investor uh, rules, there are you know restrictions around states being allowed to do this. So a state can can invest in third world debt or you know the risky risky volatile assets and the state can do that. but if they can't and they don't own a single ounce of gold, which to me seems, on a party risk when you consider safety of principle and you consider volatility all of the like the finances aside so states are, are doing things like uh allowing people to get into gold and silver allowing states themselves to get into gold and silver uh states are also establishing in-state depositories right they want to hold the state the state's gold in a safe within their own state they don't trust new york they don't want to they don't want to hold this stuff in a fed bank they want to do it in their own states which would serve at least in theory as action from a gold confiscation, which has happened here in the States before in 1933 with FDR. So like states are, are uh, making it easier to move into and out of gold, which is, is I think the most important thing. It's not necessarily that we want the government acting. It's that we want the government to get the hell out of the way and let people act. It goes back to the Ludwig's, the principles of action. It's all at the end of the day, it's all based on human action. You can create, any policy you want, but you can then have someone else that gets voted and then gets rid of that policy. And then the next generation is uneducated or unconscious about the realities of the world. And then they apply their twisted principles and they mitigate those policies that were created. At the end of the day, the only way to ensure sustainability is through a, continu a continuum of human action, applying principles that matter for that sustainability. 
Well, I think Nick Horton that I was, I was at the Mises Institute recently and I uh, was, uh, I was doing a, I was having a conversation with um, Tho Bishop, who is uh, an assistant editor over at Mises. And we were talking about exactly what you just mentioned, the importance of trustless institutions, uh, institutions that don't require a good person, a good leader to be in charge for the institution to work properly Mm -hmm. because of what you just said, right? Laws change, uh, generations die off. People don't understand the importance that are in place. And so it's like that old adage of like, don't remove a fence until you know why the fence was put up. And like, and it, it, for me anyway, it becomes more and more difficult to, for, uh, you know, gun control obviously is something that's very, uh, it's a hot topic here in the States, especially after the tragedy that Mm -hmm. happened, uh, just the other day in Texas. Um, but you know, there's, there's kind of that, the, the, a typical refrain from, you know, the anti-gun, the, the, the founders, the, the drafters of the constitution, you know, they couldn't have imagined this. They didn't have this, they didn't have, you know, automatic weapons and like, well, yeah, but they were writing, they didn't have the internet either. And they were writing with quill and ink, but the, the point of the freedom to uh, express yourself or the freedom to associate the freedom of speech, like is, is much larger than that. And so similarly, like, yes, these tragedies happen, but three happened. And that was like chock full a hundred years of conflict where citizens were regularly disarmed and then governments came and just rocked their world over and over and over. And so you have like people in Australia talking about, you know, why do you need guns? And well, it's because you just, you just were locked in your own home over COVID, you know? And, And I think a lot of people here in the States certainly wouldn't have, wouldn't have been okay with that. And it's, like the, the reality is there's there's a cold reality to the fact that at least the Second Amendment anyway was not was not written in to protect your right to shoot at deer. Right. The, the entire point of the Second Amendment is to, pre- is to protect your right to shoot at a government that that oversteps its its powers mm-hmm. um, as a mitigating force. Kind of like right, game exactly, theory, right. You're exact, mitigating it. Exactly. I know I can do something to you. Well, if I think I could do something to you and I know that the collective force is going to fight back because they have the tools to do it, well, I'm going to re-question my whole idea of what I'm going to do to you. And that that sort of speaks to an example of what I'm what I'm calling here as a trustless institution, right? So I don't if the government takes all my guns, or if the government takes everyone's guns, which by the way, when people say they want the government to take all the guns, they don't mean they want the government to take all the guns. They mean they only want the government to be the ones that have the guns, mm-hmm. which is a totally different thing. If, you know, if, if, if the government takes all of everyone's guns away, you have now introduced at least a, a higher degree of trust. Now I, okay, so you're telling me that I can't have it myself. So now this institution, this relationship requires me trusting you to protect me against, uh, you know, crimes that happen in my street or in my house. You're, exp- I'm, you're forcing me now to trust you to protect me, um, you know, any, any foreign invaders. And I am, I'm putting all my faith in an institution that historically has not been honest mm-hmm. to, to like, to put that in the nicest way possible. There's very little reason to believe when, when, at least in the States here, when the federal government or even state governments tell you, oh, you know, you can trust us, there is a long line of American history proving the opposite. And so- mm-hmm. World history introducing, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And so- that, That's also how communism starts, right? But I'll let you finish your, your, your talking point here. Go ahead. Well, like the, the disarmament of people is such like a, a, a staple of communist regimes and like the Khmer Rouge, for example. And, and you sort of see how like, this plays out in a way that it's it's foreseeable. And I think the people, at least in America, that wrote the constitution are coming from, you know, tyranny and they're they're seeing this. And like the there's a an American who called his name is Michael Malice, who says that the American right to bear arms is more central to the American experience and the American experiment, the American experiment than even the right to vote. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the right to bear arms is more central to America and what we're doing here than even the right to vote. And he's totally right, because, mm-hmm. you know, as as the saying goes, the, the Second Amendment is the one that protects all of the others. But in any case, 
trust things that that require less trust between this relationship. Frankly, this relationship of like power and powerless, because th- there is a disparity in power in your relationship in the power dynamic between you and the government, and there's a chilling effect. But like, so it's, it requires. Re- I, I think what we're what we're seeing and what we're what we need to improve are institutions and solutions that reduce the trust between the individual and anything, anyone, anywhere. With take the shape of things like uh, Bitcoin, things like decentralized money, things that can't be manipulated, uh, things like gold standards. Um, you know, these are these are all institutions that. Whose whose most important feature is that it does not require trust. It does not require a good person, and that over the long term, over the span of time, is is frankly, as far as I can see, sustainable and and quote unquote good government. Mm-hmm. You're empowering the individual at the end of the day to do to. If I if you empower me, I have less needs to depend on you. Mm. So you mitigate Alternatively, that. if you don't empower me, if you um, are willing to to do the opposite of empowering, enabling, or you know, if if uh, when when you offer something to someone, yeah, there's I think like a uh, when when something is easily provided for you, um, and you know you don't necessarily have to work for it. Be it like your food when you walk out of the house every day, or you know, money or whatever it is. There's um, I think there's like an inertia to, to, to working and sort of uh, accomplishment and uh, creating value. Uh, And similarly, there is a, a, a lack of inertia or a lack of movement to like, okay, these are stagnant work. The, the, the process of, of being stagnant and, and sort of, uh, producing less value or whatever. Of course. Right. Look, if we look at nature as a perfect example in nature, when you stagnate, you die. So societies that implement principles of stagnation or with the, like the welfare state, where it just puts you in a very fixed position and then you are become unproductive. You have meaning, you, you have no meaning, uh, you're chaotic. Uh, the moral hazard there is incredible. And then ironically, the more hazard from this welfare expansion that produces this social chaos where people are more divisive and angry and more chaotic you have more crime and more weapons being used. And then the government will then say, well, because of that, we're going to then justify us overbearing ourselves even more. Mm-hmm. And then saying, well, now we're going to ban guns and take guns because you need it because, well, well yeah. this is happening, but we so, caused that environment. So, so and I think that's kind of like a good segue into what happened this week with like, you know, the mental health. Yeah. Like there's obviously a mental health crisis, unfortunately mm-hmm. in both Canada and the U S but you know, we're so similar in a way, right? Any policy that comes out of the U.S. is going to be somewhat adapted in a Canadian variety up here. Especially if it's a very liberal or progressive Correct. one, we will Especially, take it all the way after. And, and we'll run with it because it's easy for our politicians to come back and basically say, <laughs> well, they're doing it in the U.S., so we're going to do it too, right? It's very different when you're on the other side trying hey, to get a word across. Yeah, I have a question about Canadian or I guess Canada politics. So you, there are several provinces within Canada and then you have a prime minister who is the lawmaker. So 10 provinces, so 10, 10 provinces and three territories. Uh, The lawmaker uh, Quebec's special because we want to basically, or I don't, Nick and I don't want to do that, but Quebec, Quebec is that one province where they take very significant pride in their language. And they actually just Mm. passed a bill called bill 69 you can go check oh, none, 96 96 nice. sorry oh. <laughs> yeah, be- better that it's 96 but um yeah they basically passed this bill saying that if you run a business in english you are going to be susceptible and you don't have any french you're going to be susceptible to very uh, significant fines it's very fascist like in a way because it's like no it's do as protectionism it's protectionism here so in terms of the federal law uh the federal law supersedes everything in the states. It's the state law. So we don't have like on a provincial level, it's ultimately the federal law that dictates policy. Uh, Quebec is kind of that outlier, but I know in the States, it's like every state operates on its own, right? It's like very guys- here. It's, it's very, yeah. Canada's very mixed. It's very hard to say what's what and who does what. And like, 
here they don't explain to you what your power is as a citizen in Canada. That is That's, true, actually. You don't, you're not, it's not something you're it's really not, nourished. It's ambiguous. It's ambiguous. Could that be because you have no power as a citizen? There's no incentive to tell you that is because sure. I mean it's not part of the principle. Where in the States, some places sure. it's they want to they want the citizens to understand that you are the power. And if the f- government tries to take that away from you, then you have every right as a human being in a natural reality, as a core principle of your very being to fight back and mitigate mm-hmm. that threat. In Canada, yeah. it's like, no, just go about your life, spend, uh, consume, party, go on vacations, work, pay, pay your us, taxes. we'll give you everything for free, <laughs> and don't worry about nothing else. It's a very docile country. So, and I mean, I, I think people maybe not all people or maybe not even a lot of people but i think some people would like to live in a world like that it it seems simple and uh you know if your needs are taken care of um but i was a part is that so anytime you make this trade between a government and an individual the the trade you're making up and there are you know founding fathers who have said some variation of this over and over that like you're always trading freedom for safety or, but, but like, I guess ultimately the problem is that you're not trading freedom for safety. You're trading freedom for perceived safety. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when, when something happens, when there's an attack, when there's uh, a shooting violence, when something happens, one, you're jarred with the reality that, holy shit, I was never safe. Mm-hmm. There is, there is no safety. There's only perceived safety. Mm-hmm. And two, you're hit with, oh, wait, to keep you more safe. We need to do more. Yeah, and it's it's a problem and a, it's a, a process that begets itself, right? And it, it it's like uh, what's it's that, chasing what's that, its own tail. Exactly. What's that? The, the is it certain? I forget what it's called. The Cerberus, a snake that's eating its tail, like you were just saying there, and it just it just there's yeah. an endless loop. It it's just a, doesn't it's, stop. It's, it's, yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a vicious the road, cycle. The road mm-hmm. to serfdom. hundred <laughs> percent. You know, it, it's like a at the end of the day, it's like you're a caged animal. Like my dog, he has a great life. You know, the thing is, but he doesn't know beyond his realm. Mm-hmm. You put him outside, he, he, he can't survive. As a human being, we're supposed to have the principles that humans are conscious, dignified, sovereign creatures with the ability to make their own choice. Therefore, empower us to be able to make our own choice and let us make those pursuits. As long as we don't overstep the other people's sovereignty and individual pursuits. That should be the core principles. Yeah, I I think it's also like one of these things sometimes, JP, where uh, people, like you said, people here are okay with that perceived safety, Mm. even though over time there's like no actual safety. Especially when you had no conflict to kind of give you a reason to question that. Correct, correct. And I think as humans, the psychology is nobody actually is willing to make a significant difference in their life unless they're struck to their core. Mm-hmm. Like there needs to be an event and it could, it doesn't have to be COVID. I'm just saying like, there could be an event, for example, getting fired from your first job. That's sure. going to strike a chord to you because you're just like, well, wait a minute. I thought life was get a job and do this, but I think it opens up your mind to a lot of other things that you're like, Hey, I need to be better at this, this, and this, mm-hmm. like that's the kind of striking of the core uh, that people need sometimes. So I, I don't know, like you'd have to ask like a, do a whole survey of people here, but, at the end of the day, like it, 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 you know, comfort is like that drug that kind of sucks people in and they're okay with that. So if yeah. you don't consistently push yourself and like, you know, there's not a lot of people out there like us, I don't think like there's very few people like us, like I'm always on Nick's always on you're, you're the same way. Like what's the next thing type. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it really depends on the person and like what ultimately their ambitions totally. are at the end of the day. Um, I know we're coming up here on like 1130 Eastern, but, uh, wanted to ask you one last question. I mean, you are an investor. Uh, what are you investigating right now to kind of hedge, uh, what, what policy, uh, policy, sure play. yeah. What, what's with, with all the policy that you're seeing and all the, you know, the politics that's happening, what's, what's your investment strategy right now? Uh, so I will tell you that I personally just bought, um, I, I just recently like a day, a pretty sizable investment into a royalty company, uh, mining royalties. So I um, obviously the as we were just at BRIC. Um, and so there's a lot of talk about, you know, the investing and the commodities and the, the, the resources here. Um, and so there was a lot of talk, you know, we, I, I don't, I don't know if you guys have done like a wrap up episode or anything from, 
from BRIC, but there were some really great talks. Uh, you know, Rick Rule uh, was there talking about, for example, um, there, so there are, you know, these sectors within this space that we're operating in that look like they're poised to make big jumps and, you know, with uh, price suppression and, and things like that, um, obviously. And then just inflation, monetary printing and geopolitical uncertainty, the metals, I think, I'm, I'm bullish on metals in general, but, you know, m mining. So I'm sorry, we, we started off kind of philosophical policy. I'm going to go finance for like two minutes. So, yeah, we, go ahead. Uh, so you've got like the metals, obviously very bullish, but then like, and then you can look at mining, which I think mining is a great field, obviously, but the CapEx that goes into something to, to projects like this oftentimes are like black holes where, you know, mm -hmm. you just, you, you're just pouring so much and so much of it is, is experimental or, or research or like trying to find the wells and not, not being sure. And so like a lot of these projects end up going, you know, upwards of a billion dollars and who is to say anything will actually be found. Mm -hmm. But what I like about, um, mining or excuse me, mining royalties is that it's fixed. And I'll just, we just take a percentage off the top of whatever it is every time. So it effectively for, it, it effectively serves as like an investment bank for miners because the, the, the royalty company will come and they'll, they'll influx capital into a, a business and they'll say, okay, I don't want, I don't want a payout or, or excuse me, I don't want like a, a production cost. They don't a, have, a yeah, yeah. Exactly. They have no overhead. High all I want margin. is one or 2% of whatever comes out of your mind when all is said and done. And mm -hmm. so that's my play right now. Uh, my most recent play that I'm, uh, I'm a little excited about. I think that um, just generally anywhere in this space is probably a good place to be right now. Um, my, you know, my stocks, my, um, my retirement accounts and such uh, are not, are doing incredible a bloodbath out there um, for any for anyone with uh, any sort of like mutual funds or, or mm -hmm. the stocks in general. Um, but yeah, I think uh, metals in general, and then mining or mining royalties specifically is is where I'm at right now. We'll see how that plays out um, in the next you know six to twelve months. I think that, awesome. yeah, I mean commodity shortages too. That's that's good. Mm -hmm. Well, the way I see it is, is if we know government is going to be spending money on our money and they're spending it for their political narratives, which is heavily driven towards ESG, um, renewable, not, not, not. Mm -hmm. well, guess what? They need commodities left and right. And if yep. they're going to spend the money, well, then it's going to have to go somewhere. It's going to have to go to commodities. So, yeah. And if you if you're betting. So I guess this is really a bet on well I, I guess it's a put on the american dollar which is like these contrarian assets your bitcoins your golds like those are, are puts but i guess this is um a bet that electric electricalization elect yeah electrical no elect no electrification electrification yeah yes. exactly thank you this is a bet <laughs> that electrification yeah. will happen and, and exactly. you see the writing on the walls right people you know you're moving away from coal you're moving you're you're moving towards the ev you need your lithiums your cobalts your nickels and so it makes sense to me position myself for that so now here especially we especially since you have the government pushing it and totally totally the, the writing is on the walls that. so ironically it's like we don't like when governments get involved but as investors you have to play your the field you're given yeah so this is the direction they're pushing. So we're just going to ride that wave and then find and then move out of the way after. Agreed. JP, this has been absolutely fun. Just picking your brain on different policies. And uh, you know what? We, we, we met you in Vancouver. It was almost like we had mm -hmm. known you for like four or five years. So it's, it's yeah, yeah. Absolute. We hit it off. huh? We, we hit it off right off the bat. So um, it's been an absolute pleasure, buddy. Uh, we can't wait to do this again. Can't wait to see you again. Where, where can the listeners uh, find you? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter. My Twitter is at uh, JP Cortez two seven uh, soundmoneydefense.org is the site. Um, so yeah, check us out. My, my email is on the site as well. If, if you know, you have any more interest in anything like this, or if you're in the States and it's that has really bad policies and you want to do something about that, feel free to shoot me an email, reach out anytime. Um, I, you know, I'm happy to, to work with anyone and everyone. That's particularly for our California, Canada. 
<laughs> yeah, that's my next project. Let me finish up here and then I'll head up there. <laughs> that, that, that's particularly for our California listeners because that's probably the worst. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. There are things to do in California, no doubt. <laughs> I love it, man. Well, look, keep awesome. up the great work. Thanks yeah. for coming on. And uh, we'll see you guys next time on the New Jet Mindset podcast. Cool. Ciao, Dan, guys. Nick, thank you all. Take it easy, guys. <laughs> <laughs>